Hey, podcast listeners, I've got a special offer to share with you. You can get access to all existing and future podcast CEUs for $79 subscription for a year. And because you're amazing, you can use my code SUP20 and get $20 off. A year's access to all podcast CEUs for $59. Check out the details at speechtherapypd.com and use my code SUP20. This edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast has us taking a look at sports-related concussion management with Dr. Elena Davis of Howard University. Dr. Davis has many achievements, and here are a few. She is a certified brain injury specialist trainer and assistant professor, and she takes her puppy to class for her graduate students to de-stress. How great is that? I love it. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, so be sure to check out the show notes on speechuncensored.com for links to the resources we discuss. I'm your host, Leanne Porter, and without further ado, let's meet Elena. All right. Hello, Dr. Davis. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. I am so glad to have you on the podcast this week. I'm really excited for our topic, um, sports-related concussion management and the SLP. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to be here too. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I'm really, I'm looking forward to this. Um, I feel an outpatient that I get uh, post-concussion patients from mo- mostly from vo- motor vehicle accidents, um, things like that. And so it's kind of a struggle for me to know exactly how can I assess these folks? Because oftentimes they're, um, they can be very high level, but have very specific deficits that really do be targeted. And so I'm really, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you have for me today. So before we jump into that, um, go ahead and give me a little bit of your background, um, how you got into the field, what you're doing right now, all that stuff. Um, yeah, so I actually found speech-language pathology through a personality test in undergrad. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, and speech-language pathology popped up as one of the top three things, and I just took a few classes and fell in love with it and um, kept going. Uh, I finished my undergraduate degree at the University of Houston. I did my master's at Southern University in Baton Rouge, and then I finished my PhD at Howard University, where I'm now an assistant professor. Um, so I started out wanting to work with children, but then I fell in love with the neuro courses during my master's program and um, and then just kind of really got into traumatic brain injury as I've gone. So it's an exciting field to be in. <laughs> Very much. I can identify with getting into the field, thinking that I was going to work with kids and taking the neuro classes and the medical courses and being mm-hmm. like, this is just too cool. Like, <laughs> it It's very interesting the way mm-hmm. the brain works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about how you got into your focus on like uh, concussion work with um, mostly related to sports related injuries and such. Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I 
in, during my doctoral program, I worked with um, Dr. Joan Payne, who since retired, but she has been um, a pioneer in looking at um, cultural diversity in adult neuro. And um, I um, also had another mentor named uh, Dr. Ray Hart, who was focusing on traumatic brain injury. And so once I started learning more about how traumatic brain injury impacts a person's life afterwards, that's what touched me the most. And um, I started out really having a big interest in the military population, but it's kind of hard to break into that <laughs> that area. Um, and I also developed an interest for the athletes. And then my very first job was at the University of Hawaii. And I had um, some students that were doing research with me. And one of my students um, had a very close relationship with someone who was a mixed martial arts athlete. And we did some research with them. And since then, I've just been continuing as much as I can. Awesome. That's really interesting. Um, I also saw that you are um, a brain injury specialist certified, certified brain injury specialist. (laughs) (laughs) Titles confuse me. So (laughs) Um, can you tell me a little bit about that certification process? Um, going through it, uh, what it means for you now, like when you add that to your name, what is that telling people? Okay. Yeah. So um, I am a certified brain injury specialist trainer. um, And that is through, if you go on to the Brain Injury of America's website, they have another organization called the Academy of Certified Brain Injury Specialists. And um, it's a, it's a, not an in-depth process, but there's an application. Um, you have to meet a few requirements in terms of um, the number of hours that you've spent working with persons with brain injury. And this can include TBI and stroke and other forms of brain injury. Um, and you have to take an exam and you get about a year to study for the exam. Um, and that is to be a certified brain injury specialist. To be a trainer, there are some additional requirements in terms of how, how much you present and um, if you publish and things like that. Um, in terms of having the certification, it um, in studying for it, you learn about all aspects of brain injury. So not just what we do as speech pathologists. There's um, the aspect of the physician, um, the OT, the PT, the social worker, um, anything dealing with brain injury is what you learn about as you study, but it also um, is kind of like a common link that connects you with the other professionals. And so when you go to a hospital setting or somewhere else and they see that those letters behind your name, then they recognize they recognize you as um, a brain injury specialist. Because one of the things that I'll probably mention a couple of times is that a lot of other professions don't really know what the role that speech language pathologists play um, in the management of concussions and brain injury. And so that it's like a helper. <laughs> All right. Very nice. Thank you for clearing that up for me. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, okay. Well, let's get into our topic then. And um, I guess lay a foundation work for me. Um, give me some statistics about sports related concussions um how are they affecting our youth and are we 
I guess, um, give me an age range. Are we seeing this middle school on up, elementary school on up, uh, mostly primarily high school, college? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, so right now, um, the highest statistics are in the age group of 15 to 19, oh no, 15 to 24 for sports-related concussions. Um, in general, concussions are high between the ages of 15 and 19, uh, zero to four. Um, either due to like falls or motor vehicle accidents. But for sports concussions, it really is that adolescent to young adult age that we're seeing them. And I mean, I guess it makes sense because if people usually start their sports while they're in school and they play maybe through college and then they might play a little bit when they get out, but not as frequently as they do (laughs) while they're still in school. But um, it's... it, the numbers are are shifting. Um, men are still the highest group to sustain concussions, but the numbers of women, or I guess I should say girls and women, are increasing um, day by day because there's so many um, women's sports. And um, we also see that the female population tends to hold on to, well, not hold on, but they will... Um, present with the symptoms a little longer, but they're also more likely to report them. Mm. Um, and so women's soccer has, has been a sport where there's been a large number of um, reported concussions. Um, in terms of uh, males, it's football. Um, there's still a baseball and softball but then boxing and MMA, which we, we know that it happens, but we don't talk about it as much. <laughs> but it, um, I know that in terms of just TBIs in general, there are about 5.3 million people living with um, TBI. And so for us as speech pathologists, that's a pretty high number um, that we should be aware of. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, so for women's soccer, Getting concussions, mm-hmm. is that headbutting the ball, running into other players? Like, I'm trying to think, because, you know, I, I think of soccer as just running around a field kicking a ball. So how are such a large number of women getting concussions during soccer? Mm-hmm. It is. It's um, They run into each other, um, attempting to kick the ball and maybe kicking an opponent. <laughs> they, um, they do fall a lot and um, the collisions, they seem to happen pretty frequently. And actually, um, the student athletes that I see here on campus has been primarily women's soccer players. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And I know um, there's in other countries too, they've been um, like China They've been looking more at soccer and especially women's soccer because we've been seeing higher numbers. That's so interesting. Just a really random anecdotal story that I can't stop from sharing. (laughs) But when I was in high school, um, I remember watching our uh, boys and girls team practice on two separate occasions Mm -hmm. and just being like amazed by the ferocity of the women players. Like the aggression Mm -hmm. on the field was like, whoa looking at the two it was mm-hmm. like the guys were out there i mean playing soccer obviously but the women yeah. were out for blood like and that wasn't even a game it was practice yeah 
yeah. yeah, they're tough. And, you know, and um, I'm glad you said that, too, because we do see that a lot of the concussions typically happen during practices. They happen at practice a little more than the game. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a few months ago, I went to an all-day concussion CEU that a um, hospital system hosted in my city. Mm-hmm. And they showed a video of um, a coach and of a football team. I don't remember where, and I don't remember what level, if it was pro or college. Um, and they do not tackle each other during practice. They tackle like, um, they put some kind of like drone thing inside of a blow up or a padded thing. And then they run those around the field, like a robot almost. And then they do have the stationary ones where, you know, they're in the line. I don't know anything about sports, if that's abundantly clear Mm -hmm. right now. (laughs) So they're in the line and then they like hike or whatever, and they run and they hit the the other padded things, but they never tackle each other during practice. It's only during Mm -hmm. games. And so they've shown that that does not adversely affect their performance during games. In fact, it like improved Mm -hmm. I don't know, some certain percentage that's like a positive thing for football players (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. because that particular coach was so knowledgeable and passionate about preventing or reducing the likelihood of concussions for his players. He just eliminated a large portion of it because they practice a whole lot more than they play the game against the opponent. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's pretty awesome, too. Um, I do find that football has been, and because of all of the publicity that they've gotten about concussions, they have really um, done a lot of work in how they practice, even um, developing better forms that are um, that are supposed to be more safe in terms of how they're um, to decrease the headbutting and things mm-hmm. like that. I've been to... Um, uh, a few concussion sessions with athletes and they would um, talk about how they were working on different forms to help support and uh, keep the athletes safe. Yes. That's a priority. It's not just about helmets. I mean, that's a great place to start, obviously, <laughs> but it is about how you're hitting your opponent. And then I guess in the rules, they're making certain th- certain types of hits legal and illegal or things like that. Yeah, I'm going to have to yeah. get back to talking about something I'm a little bit more knowledgeable on. <laughs> oh. All right, Elena, tell me um, how concussions affect um, educational, vocational and social activities for um, these athletes. OK, um, yeah, so it's interesting with concussions, because like you mentioned earlier, um the patients or the clients will be high level, right? And so it's kind of hard to always tell, um, but the the symptoms, um, they have physical symptoms, dizziness, headaches, um, they may feel nauseous, lights may be irritating to them. And so if you already, if you only think about the physical part, then you can already see how someone's day can be, um, uh, affected because if you have a headache all day long and then you have to go to work or go to class, you're not going to be doing too great in terms of paying attention to the teacher, right? Um, and so there's the physical part and then there's emotional behavioral. 
and their emotional behavioral is feeling irritable all the time and they're moody or um, they have a hard time with being able to um, uh, control their uh, what they say or do um, and control their emotions. So they have a loss of inhibition. And so if you have that aspect going on, then you run into getting in trouble if you're in school. Um, not being able to keep a job, because if you have a bad attitude on your job and you can't keep control of your emotions, you're probably not going to have that job for too long. Um, and then as well as social activities, it can impact your interpersonal relationships, how you um, deal with your friends and your family. Um, and so that's the physical and the emotional behavioral. And then when we get to the cognitive communicative skills, which is going on at the same time as the other parts, um, difficulty with paying attention. Um, and in all aspects, we need that. We have to be able to follow what our teachers are saying. Um, and at work, if we are working on a task, we have to be able to maintain our attention to that task. Um, being able to remember directions and instructions to organize what you're supposed to do that day. Um, and completing assignments or making plans. And so concussions can really have a strong impact on um, your day-to-day -day functions and how you, um, how you interact uh, throughout your um, activities. Yeah, very much. I think back to my patients that come in and what their concerns are. And it, mm -hmm. it does do a lot with... Um, mental fatigue over the course of a day too, and yeah. identifying what some of those triggers might be that will wear them out faster, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. like you mentioned before, that sensitivity to light, being photosensitive, um, that's something that, you know, we take for granted before, you know, a, a brain injury may occur. And so mm -hmm. then that will be something we take for granted afterwards. We might be like, oh, it's really bright, but we don't understand how that's affecting our brain and how that might increase the fatigue and right. the, the, you know, another phrase that people will say is a mental fog, you know, not feeling like they can think mm -hmm. clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, okay. So you want me to fix your mental fog. That, <laughs> that's, that's okay. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, well, here's what I can help with. This is what I have. <laughs> like, I don't mm -hmm. have the magic power for clarifying mental fog, but I'm here to walk beside you. <laughs> exactly. So what is our, well, I guess good, good segue from that is what is our role in coming alongside um, of our patients and clients who have experienced a concussion either from sports or a motor vehicle accident? Um, where do we fit in? Okay, um, so I usually, well, when I talk about sports concussion, um, preseason education and baseline testing um, is an area where we should be. We're not always involved with this process, um, but it's one of those areas where we we need to find a way to be more involved with that preseason assessment because um, because the symptoms of concussion are so um, challenging to detect because they're so uh, mild, 
having that baseline information is a great way to gauge if changes have occurred. Um, and so I'm really big on trying to be a part of that preseason um, assessment. And then um, being involved as early as we can in the post-concussion assessment. So like when you get someone with a car accident, you're usually seeing them right away because they come to the hospital after that car accident, um, if they recognize that something has happened, right? Uh, but what happens sometimes um, with sports is that the person may have the concussion and they go through the process because they do testing, right? They do the impact testing, that's um, a neuropsych test, and they will monitor them but it could be a month later when the student says, you know what, I'm still having a hard time remembering. Um, and then they come to us a month after they've had the concussion. And so I think if we're more involved in the beginning, then we'll be able to step in a little earlier. And then in terms of monitoring and management, um, it's really about finding out what their strengths and challenges are in the areas of cognitive uh, communicative skills, and then being able to also look at what their functional daily needs are in terms of if they're in school, if they're going to work, or they have social activities, and seeing how we can best support them through rehab and then also through um, accommodations or management techniques, because we can't treat a mental fog, right? Like you mentioned, but we can find other types of management strategies that can support them um, throughout their day. Very nice. Um, when you talk about preseason testing, um, do you have a assessment that you, is there something standardized, something just for school-aged population kind of baseline do you use the same assessment? So is it something made for concussions that you would do on the whole team before the season starts? And then if that individual um, experiences a concussion during the season, then you're able to do that same assessment on them in that moment to be able to compare how they do? Mm -hmm. So um, right now, the majority of programs use the impact testing, which is a sideline concussion testing. So they, it's, a, um, it's an online um, program where they can go in and do the test and it gives them baseline data on their cognitive skills, um, attention, speed of processing, uh, working memory, um, and some cognitive shifting and things like that. The, um, that is, it's a neuropsych test. So it's very, um, it's very, uh, I don't want to use the word basic, but it doesn't include communication in the way that we would look at it. But it is a great, um, it is a great way to have baseline data. I don't have a specific test that I would say is like absolutely going to work because even if you look through the research, we all kind of use different, a number of different uh, methods or measures. Um, but there are some that are really popular. So. Um, when we talk about uh, youth, the pediatric test of brain injury is good. That's more of a that's more of a post concussion, <laughs> actually. But um, there's um, the R bands, the repeatable. Um, uh, oh shoot, now I can't think of the name of it now. All the way, but th there's the R bands. Um, the favors is very popular, and there's a student version of the favors. Um, 
as well as an adult version. And it is a it's a very high level test for verbal reasoning and executive skills that um, I feel like it could be a really good preseason and postseason assessment because it um, it uh, it's a has a lot of open-ended types of questions. And so um, the students wouldn't necessarily be able to remember or uh, memorize the test that much. And then um, I know that the Woodcock Johnson is still one that people use um, and school diagnosticians use that one too in the cognitive linguistic quick test. Um, so preseason, I think it's great for us to have that type of information um, in terms of cognitive communicative skill. Post-concussion, um, I think you could still use some of those same tests, but we also wanna make sure when we're testing our youth that we're also still looking at their expressive and receptive language skills. Because what's really important for children um, and those who are in school is the academic impact. So when we are testing, we need to make sure that we are um, do it being very holistic and as comprehensive as we can so that we can best um, see how this student um, is functioning in all areas. Um, when we are evaluating, um, you've talked about some formal and standardized assessment measures. Um, never use any informal measures or um, questionnaires for the student parents, family members, anything like that? Yes, um, the post-concussion symptom scale, you can find it online if you Google it. Um, that's really popular because it, um, it lets the, the person that you're testing be able to rate um, the level or severity of the different symptoms they may be experiencing. And it's divided into the physical, the emotional, and some of the cognitive symptoms. And that one's really nice uh, because it organizes them for you and it tells you um, if, it's, if it's more mild, moderate, or severe. Um, and it actually asks them to tell you what they've experienced in the last 72 hours. So if it's someone that you see post-concussion, then you can say, okay, you've been experiencing this the last 72 hours and you, had, you experienced a concussion maybe a few days ago or a month ago, <laughs> it lets you know um, some things to be aware of. Um, I also, um, I, I'm really big on discourse. Um, and so I like to do, I like to ask people to give me narratives about different topics, um, just so I can get a general idea of how they tell stories and um, how they explain information. And that's typically an informal task. Um, there's also there's another um, measurement and it's it's actually standardized, but it's not an assessment. It's called the small Z and it's a school um, school motivation and a learning inventory. And it's really nice because it lets the student rate themselves in terms of how they feel they take notes, how they study. Um, how they concentrate. And so you can align all of that information with their test performance. So if we're talking about supporting them in return to learn, that's a great um, tool to assist with that. Yeah, that sounds really nice. 
<laughs> I'll have to um, get these names from you and um, put them in our show mm-hmm. notes for people to go and check out. Cause I'm sure people are you know, okay. driving as they're listening and they're like, ah, yeah. that would be really good, but I can't write that down. <laughs> so we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. All right. Um, so how do we take, oh, you know what? I wanted to ask you about that piece you were talking about on discourse where you like to hear it mm-hmm. and you want to see how people um, can explain something. So what would mm-hmm. prompt that you would give um, someone to have them ex- to explain something? Mm-hmm. Um, so I use, a, there's it is wonderful professor that I did discourse analysis um, with when I was in my doc program. Her name is Dr. Hannah Ulitowska, Um, and she is a, um, a major uh, part of doing discourse. And um, some of the questions that she would use are, tell me your story. So tell me your, well, she's the first stroke. So I would say, tell me the story of when you got your TBI or your concussion. Um, and so I would have them tell me about that day or what they remember from that moment. Um, another one is tell me a memorable moment. And so it's just having them to tell you about something good that happened in their life. And you can also use tell me a frightening story. Um, I might say, tell me if they celebrate birthdays and holidays, then I may say, tell me about your the best birthday that you remember or something like that. And so, um, you know, with discourse, you kind of have to outline what you're looking for if you're going to collect information about it. So um, I generally look for how coherent their story is, um, if it's if it's clear and if I understand it, if, if there's cohesion, if their steps or the sequencing of the story flows, um, if they show tangential speech, because that's that's very common with brain injury. Um, and then I'll also pay attention to if they can remember the detail. Because um, sometimes what we'll see with brain injury is that they will give you the very most gist of something, or they may get very, very specific on one thing <laughs> and not really give you the whole story. So I think discourse is one of my favorite areas. Yes, I really enjoy that too. I feel like you can do so much with that. And it is, I, I like how you were like, you need to know what you're looking for <laughs> ahead of time. You need a very specific rubric almost of, of what you're looking for and, and what you want them to show you during that story time. Um, I find also that if I give somebody a prompt and they're kind of giving me something, but it's nowhere near really what I was anticipating or wanting them to show me. I like to give them the second opportunity and give them the specifics. Like I'm looking for you to, to, you know, a very clear picture with a beginning, a middle and an end, or, you know, I want you to use very specific terminology. You know, in your last story, you, you used a lot of pronouns and I wasn't able to follow who you were talking about in your story. So this time, I want you to be very specific so that, you know, me, an outsider who doesn't know you or the story has a clear picture. Uh, and right. if that doesn't help, right. then <laughs> yeah. Yeah. right. Okay. Uh, do you have anything else to add uh, for the evaluation aspect? Um, no, I think that's it. I think, um, well, you know, I talked about academic impact, um, but we also want to remember those who are going back to work 
and being able to look at the impact that their deficits may have on the job. Um, and so um, there's a researcher named Peter Muhlenbrook. I hope I'm pronouncing the last name correctly, um, but he does a lot of work in TBI and um, return to work. And, um, and in his uh, research, he uses some interesting methods in terms of finding out how to best support um, persons with brain injury on the job. And so we have to also um, remember <laughs> that these people will likely go back to work and go back to, you know, the groups that they belong to and all of that. Um, so we want to really look at them in a functional way. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right, good. Well, let's move on to um, therapy and management. And um, so when I say therapy, I'm talking about, you know, the tools that we can offer in a rehabilitative way that we are utilizing the neuroplasticity of the brain. And we want to see those neurons reconnect and build bridges between a lost function to get that function back. And then management is more along the lines of compensatory strategies and education and being aware of what uh, certain triggers might be um, for the post-concussion patient. So um, I will just, I will just leave this on you now. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And so you already defined pretty much uh, the difference between the therapy and the management. Um, you know, one thing about cognitive skills is that we, we talk about them in different categories. We have attention and we have memory and we have executive functions. Um, and I also like to throw social communication in there. And even though they're their own thing, they all work in connection with each other. And so that's yeah. something to be, to be considerate of. So attention we know is the base. Because you first have to be able to pay attention to be able to remember the information that's coming to you, right? Um, and so that's usually that usually could be a starting place is the attention. So um, I know that the research has shown that drills for attention works. Um, there's um, a really great app that I think a lot of SOPs uh, might use, a constant therapy, um, which is a really great app um, for. Um, drilling for attention, but there's also many things that you can do um, in your own space. Um, you know, you want to start with the least amount of distractions and increase distractions as you go. You might open the door, play music or some sounds behind the person while they're trying to work on a task or something like that. Um, and also, when we think about the, the management part of attention, um, supporting them through accommodations. So that could include note writers or note takers or receiving the classroom notes ahead of time. Um, and then even having shorter days and less, um, less work um, because of that mental fatigue, because that mental fatigue will play a role in how they, how they um, maintain attention or, you know, if they're able to um, switch back and forth using alternating attention skills or do multiple things at one time. And so once we know that we see we're working on attention and we're building that up, then we, we focus more on the memory. Um, 
the rehabilitation part of memory. Um, the research hasn't shown that drills work so much. So just having somebody just continuously say things right after you is not always the, the most effective thing. But what, what we usually do as speech pathologists is teach the person how to use mnemonics and um, semantic and visual associations that will increase their memory. Um, and also a uh, space retrieval. We talk about it a lot. Um, uh, there's a book um, by Solberg and Turkster called Optimizing, um, Optimizing Rehabilitation. And it, the book is, I think that they say that it's geared more towards the moderate to severe um, severities of TBI, but I still think that they have a lot of really great methods that you can use for your your uh, patients or clients who have mild TBI as well. And they have really great worksheets for collecting data. Um, and so they talk, they talk about memory in the terms of facts and concepts. And that's really how we should, um, when we talk about mnemonics and associations, that's really what we're teaching them. Um, so that's a great resource as well. And you can download their, um, their worksheets as well. Um, and then the other thing with memory in terms of um, management and compensatory strategies, there's the external um, devices that we may use. So smartphones, smartphones are great, and especially for like this young adult population, they use their phones for everything. And so it is considered therapy if you go through the phone with them and help them download an app on organizing their homework or their task for work. Um, using their calendar appropriately. <laughs> that is how I live my life. Like I almost every uh -huh. session where I'm doing cognitive therapy, I will pull out my phone and show them the calendar mm -hmm. on my phone. And it's all got different colors for the different types of activities or reminders mm -hmm. on my phone. And I'm like, if anybody wants anything from me, I put it on my calendar. <laughs> Yeah. Or I might never remember it. Like if someone's like, Hey, Leon, do you want to go to lunch on Friday? I'm like, sure. Hold on a second. I'm going to put that in my calendar <laughs> right now, or I will yeah. forget it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Now I'm the same way. I have to write things down so that I can remember. Um, but yeah, th but those are great tools that we can use. Um, and they're realistic um, for our, for our patients and clients. Um, and then there's executive functioning where there's all these different aspects to it. There's problem solving, there's organization, um, there's planning, self-regulation, all these different areas. But really, we're taking those skills that they've gained through attention and memory to help them with being able to solve problems better. Because to be able to solve a problem, you have to remember what you're trying to do. You have to remember what your options are, um, you know, and so it all plays in together. Um, executive functions, we use a lot of worksheets. Um, I really love the deductive reasoning tasks that come in some of the workbooks. Um, but also tasks such as having them, um, when you get on that smartphone and you're showing them how to organize their assignments, that is an organization and functional planning skill. If they are, um, Let's say they are coming close to graduation and they're getting ready to have a graduation party. Let's plan out your party. Um, I've also had some um, students where they 
they're getting ready to go back into the classroom. Well, I had this one really interesting um, 21 year old who had a brain injury, very mild, and he had to take off um, a semester from school. He was getting ready to go back and he was a business major. And so we structured his therapy session just like it was um, a classroom. And so he had he had to take notes, he had assignments, he had to watch lectures. We did TED Talks. Um, TED Talks are great for that. And we could look at how he took notes. Um, he had to put together a final. He had no. He had a midterm test, and then he had to put together a final project. And so we were able to help him work through all of that so that he would be prepared for going back to school. And then we have that highest level of executive functions, which is metacognition, and that's that self-regulation. So as you work through your executive function task and you're teaching them problem solving and organization, you're also working with them on being able to um, identify um, what they what they may experience as it could be a roadblock or an issue and what other possible um, situations could be. And then if they choose something that didn't work for them, okay, I didn't do that the right way. I'll do this. I'll do it differently the next time. So being able to adjust and monitor yourself in how you are functioning every day. Um, and that's really one of the main goals because a lot of times also, and I didn't mention this with TBI, is that they don't always recognize that they have challenges. Um, so, so bringing about that self-awareness is, um, is an important part of the therapy process. Um, and then the last area is social communication, which is a combination of attention and memory and executive functions, because you, um, you're basically working on interacting with other people. Um, and so following conversations, um, being able to maintain topics and, um, you know, and being appropriate also. So I, I think I covered it. <laughs> that, yes, that is excellent. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm looking back over our outline and I'm loving it. This was so good. Um <laughs> We covered the different types of um, assessments that are available for us to use, mm -hmm. like the, now my, I have a question about the impact testing that you uh -huh. mentioned, that's, um, that sideline testing. Is that a paper format or is that on a computer? It's a computerized test and it's generally given by um, athletic trainers um, and physicians. It, it, there's a specific um, requirement uh, or almost like a certification in a sense, there's a specific training that you go through to be able to administer it. Mm -hmm. And to gain access to that, is it a paid service or is it like freely available? Um, no, it, yeah, it's a paid service. Um, it's a kind of expensive. <laughs> um, and I, I'm not certified to, um, to give that, but you can, um, if you, if you know that this test is being given and you can get access to the results, there are CEU courses on their website where you can learn to interpret the, um, the results. Oh, okay. Now, is it kind of like a screen? Is it a brief evaluation or is it pretty in-depth? I think it takes about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, and that's the intention is for it to be something quick that they can give. Um, and it had, it, it's 
pretty much a combination of a lot of the neuropsych tests that we see. So they'll give them some speed of processing things where they have to tap when something comes across the screen, um, or even like the Stroop test where you there's the words of color, um, the colors, but they're in different colors and you have to identify um, the right one. Um, so there's like the trail making task. So there's different tasks like that within that test. Okay. All right. Um, I think the post-concussion symptoms scale would be really good to have in our arsenal. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that that one was online. So is that just kind of like a freely available out there in the world type of? Yeah, there's and there's different versions. I mean, they're they're all the same, but they just have different looks to them. So I think um, there's one from um, the Hawaii Concussion um, Management Program. There's one from, I want to say the University of Oregon. But once you type it in Google, it'll pop right up. Okay. And then um, I also really liked all the different examples you gave for therapy and management mm-hmm. um, that targets attention, memory, executive functioning skills, and social communication. Um, are there resources out there for people to dig in deeper? I'm thinking maybe courses or books or um, now you did mention the researcher, Peter Mullenbrook. Yes. um, Who does TBI and return to work. Mm -hmm. So um, any other types of resources you can think of maybe that are also geared towards the, the treatment aspect that our listeners might be able to go and look up and access. Yeah, um, so I did. I mentioned the optimizing cognitive rehabilitation, and that is an instructional um, textbook, and that's by um, McKay Solberg and Lynn Terkstra. Um, in terms of, I'm trying to think. I might not have a, an exact response. <laughs> and I, yeah, I tend to, um, I tend to create a lot of my own material based on the methods that I see in the research. Um, so, but, but then those, um, those methods that we read, that we learn about in our textbooks, like the space retrieval, errorless learning, um, even um, communication partner training, like you see with aphasia, you can use that in your discourse analysis, because um, if you're patients or your clients have a hard time with communicating effectively um, and it's social inappropriateness and things like that, you still have to work with the family members to help them to understand them better and to be able to redirect the conversations or um, manage how they ask questions and and different aspects of communication in that form. (laughs) Yes, that's really good. Well, I think we've got everything. I think we're ready for our wrap up. So um, do you have any parting thoughts, a word of advice or encouragement for our listeners? Um, I do. Um, I think, and I didn't mention this too much, but building relationships with other professionals that are around student athletes, like the athletic trainer, is a really great thing to do because that will increase your referrals and allow assessments to occur in a timely manner. Um, remembering when you do your assessment to also document um, the academic impact, the vocational impact, and the social impact. 
um, especially if we're saying that we're doing functional treatment. Um, and also providing education and advocacy um, for your clients and for our profession, because I think that's where we're lacking a little bit. And the more that we um, advocate for our profession, the more we'll be able to help people. Um, and I know um, when it comes to uh, SOPs in the schools and even in the hospitals and all, we're always busy. We have a lot on our caseload. And so sometimes it feels like you don't have time to do all those extra things. But I think when we build those relationships, that kind of takes some of that stress off of us and helps us to um, be able to support the students better, um, especially when they're involved, because we are a super important part of the process. Absolutely. Well, Elena, this was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge and your experience and your tools and resources with us. This was so helpful. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It was fun. Oh, good. Yay. So you'll be back then, right? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I just want to thank Elena one more time for spending about three quarters of an hour nerding out with me on concussion management. Like, where else do I get the opportunity to just be a nerd like all the time? This is so great. Next week, we're learning how to specialize in voice therapy with Dr. Aaron Ziegler. Aaron wants to equip SLPs with the knowledge, skills, and mentors to practice efficient and effective voice therapy. It's a fantastic discussion that will make you a little upset that we didn't just keep talking for another few hours. <laughs> I felt like I could have let Aaron keep going and I was a little sad I had to wrap us up. Like, I was bummed. But we have a great discussion anyway. You'll love it. It's a big help when you leave a written review on Apple Podcasts and you know what? I love reading them. So let's keep that love flowing and share your thoughts with me. Also, if you're not already, feel free to follow me on Instagram to stay up to date on all things podcast. You can find me as Speech Uncensored on that platform. Thanks to listeners in Knoxville, Tennessee, Newark, Delaware, and Garden City, Idaho for joining me. I'm so glad you're nourishing your brain so that your practice can flourish. Now, go be awesome.